good to see everybody. Um, I was afraid this would be, I've always heard of Presbyterian revival as you start with 100 and end up with 42. So thank you for staying coming back. Let's pray. God, um, we thank you that we're here because someone told us about Jesus and someone told them. And we are grateful for the line of people who have borne witness, who have preached your gospel. Lord, we pray for humility uh, to learn from those who uh, came before us, who lived in different times, uh, to um, understand what you would have us to do by looking at what they have done uh, when, when it was their time to uh, stand firm, when it was their time to um, run the race set before them. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, I, I, when I kind of started studying history, I had a really romantic notion, this idea that we learn what they did in the past, and we do exactly what they did. And when I got in and studied history, I realized people did things in the past based on the issues they were facing, based on the context they were in, based on uh, the flow of history. They were reacting to things. But we could kind of understand what was um, essential by what they were holding to and trying to adapt to uh, their context. So um, honestly, studying a lot of history gave me a lot of freedom to say, we don't have to do just what they did. We understand why they do it, and it gives us a deeper understanding. So we're going to look at uh, what our ancestors did to share the message of Jesus um, not so we can say, okay, and that's exactly what we're going to do, but to understand how they did that in their context and how, help us just get a sense of how we do it in ours. And also uh, to, to maybe be a corrective. We, we tend to go along with our culture, our history, and uh, we tend to make the same mistakes as um, other people living in our same time. So there's kind of a corrective as we hear other voices who don't share the same assumptions in us as we do, then might correct us. So uh, we're going to look at um, the Church of Scotland and the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. And the reason we're going to do that is because the Church of Scotland is the established national church. The church in Ireland, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, is a dissenting body. Uh, the national church there is an Anglican or Episcopal church, the Church of Ireland. And so we have these two bodies with same theology, same culture, um, intertwined histories, but one with all the force of political and cultural authority behind them, and the other that was facing um, legal um, uh, penalties and persecution, uh, to kind of see how they shared and how they, how they were faithful in their context. So um, we have the, um, the established church in Scotland um, does not mean this, that they um, didn't believe in the independence of the church. All right, so during the Reformation, 1560, the, the church believed that it should be an independent body, but that is not the same as American um, no-established church. They believed they should be able to make decisions, not have the government interfere, but they believed they should be established. They should have um, political uh, privileges, responsibilities to the entire nation, um, and that they should have a... a place as a authority kind of equivalent to the civil authority. So the idea was there are two different jurisdictions, but both recognized on a national level. Um, so it's not the same, the independence is not the same as there shouldn't be an established church. 
All right, so I'm going to bring up a little bit more about kind of the way we tend to think of evangelism. Uh, the, the list of different um, evangelistic methods that you had was very helpful. I was thinking that, you know, we, we tend to think of evangelism as special events, programs, training the laity in four spiritual laws, your five points, three circles, two ways to live. We're just going to get it down to one point and just, you know, we're shrinking it down, making it simpler. We, we, we train people for that or um, not anymore, but I can still remember Billy Graham crusades and the idea that something big like that was evangelism. And uh, being from Alabama, there's still places that do tent revival. So there's this idea that evangelism is something other than preaching so that it was not uncommon as I was kind of thinking this through to find people who had written about preaching and evangelism which is a very different idea from our predecessors. Um, J.I. Packer has an article, um, Puritan Evangelism, which is very much similar to the things we're going to see here, where he says the, the modern understanding um, evangelism is barely would be recognized as evangelism at all um, if we were to look back at what our ancestors did. We're so used to modern understanding that we wouldn't recognize it. Moreover, the word isn't used, or, or at least it's not used in the same way. Um, if you were to look at a dictionary, for example, the 1741 Royal English Dictionary or a treasury of the English language, under evangelism, it says it is the act of preaching the gospel. That is evangelism. And in later 19th century works, evangelism is almost used, in, it was used in the same way that we would say Methodism or spiritualism. It was the movement of the evangelical party. Um, so it was kind of not efforts to reach out, it was just kind of um, a system of belief held by this party. So when we think of programs and special events, they thought of the means, ordinary means of grace, preaching and the ministry of the church. Moreover, I think evangelism for us connotes reaching out to unchurched people. Um, some of you might have a discipleship committee and an evangelism committee. Evangelism for people outside the church, discipleship for those within. I think we're going to hear more about that at lunch tomorrow, that evangelism for them was for everyone. So there was an early 18th century publication that defines evangelism or gospel ministry as a divine institution made effectual by the Holy Spirit the proper and principal purposes of gospel ministry are the conversion of sinners and the edification of saints. It's to do both. And there's no conceptual difference between evangelism or missions. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, whether it's to the baptized unbeliever in their parish, whether it's the remote Gaelic um, uh, countrymen who have not come to faith, or whether it was to Native Americans across the sea, all of it was understood as evangelism. Uh, so we're going to do a whirlwind tour of Scottish and Irish Presbyterian history um, so that we can get peek in at some places and see what they were doing to reach out with the gospel. And then I'm going to summarize with four reflections on things we might learn from them. All right, so buckle up. This is, this is when we start flowing. At the time of the Reformation, England and Ireland were both under the same crown. Scotland was a different country. 
And if you really want to make um, an, a Scottish or an Irish or an Englishman really angry, confuse them. <laughs> right. So they were all separate. Uh, the Ireland and England were under one crown. Scotland was a different country. And in 1560, um, Scotland broke with the Pope, got rid of the mass, and they adopted um, the Scottish Confession and a first book of discipline. This book of discipline laid out Presbyterian church government kind of in an embryonic form um, because we wouldn't recognize it as Presbyterian. It, they didn't have hierarchy of courts at the time. Uh, they had ministers and elders and deacons, but they also had superintendents, which were like bishops who actually did their job. And so these, um, also the, the, the introduction of it kind of gives us a sense of what they understood evangelism to be. The, the very first head of the um, uh, Book of Discipline says, seeing that Christ Jesus is he whom God the Father has commanded only to be heard and followed of his sheep, we urge it necessary that his evangel be truly and openly preached in every kirk and assembly of this realm and that all the doctrine repugning to be the same, utterly suppressed as damnable to man's salvation. So it was careful to say that the, the gospel has to be proclaimed, error has to be suppressed, and that it was to be preached everywhere in the land. Also, this was radical. The, the first book of discipline endeavored to put a public school in every parish um, so that they could be teaching. And this is the, the, the rationale behind this. God has determined that his church here in earth shall be taught not by angels, but by men. And seeing men are born ignorant of all godliness, and seeing also God now ceases to illuminate men miraculously, suddenly changing him, them, as he did his apostles and others in the primitive church, that's the saying, therefore we need to establish uh, schools. Now, schools, they would teach reading and writing Latin, but also the Bible and the catechism. They were using the Genevan catechism. And the understanding is, this is the means the Holy Spirit uses to illumine people to the knowledge of God and open them to understand the gospel. It was you know, a lengthy education to understand the basics of the faith and the scriptures. So in addition to that, masters of households were to catechize their household under penalty of discipline. Scottish church discipline. So they, they, they had to, elders would make sure this was taking place. Um, now we think of just kind of nuclear families, but for them that would have mean probably fairly extended family, domestic servants, apprentices living with you, workmen who lived with you. In other words, all in your household, which would be more than just your 2.1 kids and dog and cat, you know, this, you, people you have influence over, you were routinely catechizing them. All right, so this was the ideal, didn't happen. You know, they had this vision, not fully implemented, um, not funded, supported completely by government, but we see what the intent was. Um, and one of the things, um, so, I'm sorry, one of the things they meant to do also with this was superintendents were to preach. There were limits on how long they could live in one place because they were to go around to all these places where you didn't have people. You know, just because the parliament said, okay, we're reformed, didn't mean every parish priest was suddenly reformed and preaching from the pulpit the gospel. So the superintendent was to go to these places and preach and make sure that the gospel was being proclaimed everywhere. Um, 
I just love the little jabs they have. These men must not be suffered to live as your idle bishops have done heretofore. Neither must they remain where gladly they would. They must be preachers themselves and must make no long residence in any one place till the churches are planted and provided of ministers or at least readers. So they're flexible. So uh, the, um, 1578, the General Assembly comes back and adopts a second book of discipline. They're trying to get, to get this worked out. And um, they come closer to our understanding of Presbyterianism. They, they have hierarchy of courts. They have the officers that we're familiar with. There's no longer a superintendent. Um, doesn't, they try to implement it as best they could. The government doesn't support it. Um, finally, in 1592, Parliament approves of presbyteries. And in, if you're reading the second book of discipline, you don't start off with this wonderful thing of proclaiming the gospel. You start off with, this is the church's authority, and that's the state's authority. And it starts off laying out who's responsible for what, and kind of saying, get off our backs, we're supposed to do this, and you get out of our business. And this kind of shows us the trajectory that Scottish church history is going to take for a while, is there's just this debate over authority and the form of government, and we'll see as they get this um, struggle of survival against the kings. Um, so the Reformation took place. Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, was the monarch of the time. She was forced to abdicate her throne. Jo uh, James VI of Scotland uh, was an infant. He was one year old when he was crowned. So they were able to do a pretty good bit of stuff while the king was incapable of interfering with things. But when he comes of age, he starts interfering. He starts bringing back um, worship practices that would have been objectionable. He starts bringing in bishops. He's really good. I mean, he's an excellent politician. He's also a good theologian. He does a great job of, of getting um, bishops back in. So there's this struggle through the late uh, 1580s into uh, the early 1600s where Episcopacy is being restored. During this time, we, we see the, the tension between the church and the crown in two wonderful quotes. Andrew Melville, one of the leaders of, kind of the Reformation after Knox, uh, actually told the king, you've got to admire Andrew Melville's courage. Sir, you are but God's silly vassal. <laughs> And that his head wasn't chopped off there and he was able to finish the sentence is wonderful. There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the head of the commonwealth. There is Christ the king, the king of the church, whose subject James the sixth is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, not a lord, not a head, but a member. James's views were summarized later. This wasn't the same conversation. No bishop, no king. He felt there had to be bishops, and they wanted to remember Christ is the head of the church, not the monarch, where it was in England. Incidentally, one of my early uh, tours of St. Giles Cathedral, uh, where uh, John Knox preached, um, it's also kind of the royal place. There's this beautiful, big, huge kind of throne chair along with the pews. And of course, um, the, the young lady who was with me said, I'm sorry, yeah, the tour guide, is, is this where the queen sits? He says, yes. And it's like, yes, this amazing big chair. Everybody was impressed. He says, and notice, it's with the congregation. She's the head of the church in England. She comes here, we remind her she's a part of the congregation. So to this day, the queen has her, oh, they're still telling her where she can sit. So, <laughs> All right, so uh, 1603, queen of, Elizabeth, queen of Elizabeth of England dies. King James um, 
is her cousin. He becomes king of both England and Scotland. This does not mean Scotland and England become united. He's king of both countries, but they're separate parliaments, so you continue to have a Church of England, Church of Scotland. Um, he was faced with an issue where in the north of Ireland there had been a rebellion and it was really depopulated. He needed to send people in. So he comes up with a scheme of trying to get uh, lowland Scots to go into Ulster and um, set up areas there to farm. It was the plantation of Ulster. And as they move in, they bring with them Presbyterian ministers. And so you wind up having a lot of Presbyterian ministers taking place, and a lot of Presbyterians from the Church of um, Scotland move into Ireland. At this time, the, the Church of Ireland was still Episcopal lines, but they needed pastors, and so a lot of these ministers would preach in the Church of Ireland. So they wouldn't conform. Um, they would continue to worship according to Presbyterian practice. They didn't form a presbytery, but they were Presbyterian, and the bishop's attitude was, hey, an educated Presbyterian is better than nothing. So the pressures uh, they were leaving was the, the attempt to get people to conform. So in Scotland, they were trying to make them become more Episcopal, so they were um, leaving there and going over. And those pressures, as they were trying to get bishops and worship um, in Scotland uh, were having an impact that was kind of a catalyst for revival. So what would happen is, um, this is a very zealous Presbyterian, we're gonna kick him out of the pulpit. So he goes around and starts preaching everywhere. It has a real big influence beyond just his local parish. And then if someone was in a church and their pastor had conformed to the, the bishop and the worship, um, the people would say, we're not sure if we should take the Lord's Supper from this guy. We're going to go down the road where the more zealous Presbyterians are. We can trust them. And so the Lord's Supper became kind of open descent. It became, oh, and it also was a time of kind of bonding the community and a kind of a renewal. Um, Records are kind of sketchy, but one of the things that was going on is they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, and as more people would gather together, they would do it over a period of time. So it wasn't that you would just come together on the Lord's Day. You would have um, sermons and um, study of fasting and preparation. Um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you'd have the Lord's Supper, huge culmination of event. Monday, you'd have a, a service of Thanksgiving. It became a week-long thing, and as more and more people came out, this became, you'd have to go outside. And so you started winding up where people would come and they would celebrate the sacrament over the, um, the week, oftentimes um, you know, staying in this area. And it became a time of renewal and revival as they were in self-examination. And the way someone would really kind of say they're following the gospel would be, am I going to go to the Lord's Supper? Am I going to commune? And so these events would kind of challenge someone. Are you trusting Christ? Are you believing in him? And so that, that confrontation and then having to go and meet with the minister, meet with the elders because they fenced the table. The way they did that was you would meet and we would discuss how it is with your soul. And you would receive a lead communion token to say you can come to the table. And because the seriousness of that meant there was renewal, there was repentance. This is the background of later camp meeting revivals. People would gather together for a week, spending the night there, 
intense sermons and, and things, and um, this was the background. Well, that, that kind of started in the early 1600s, and it was going on in, in Scotland, but also uh, a significant one in Ireland. Um, several folks who had left um, Scotland for Ulster, um, and this was one of the big events behind the identity of um, Irish Presbyterianism, was this six-mile water revival. Um, it was around 1625. This is a great story. Uh, you just love God's providence. Sometime uh, around there, this guy named James Glendenny, um, he's preaching in a city, and they say, you're not doing a really good job listening out to the country. One author describes him as a powerful, intellectually suspect, and apparently neurotic preacher. <laughs> so he's out there, and he's doing a great job of giving God's law and giving God's wrath and all the people respond and there's this revival and everybody's crying out how can I be saved what do I do I, I'm a sinner and he doesn't know what to say he can only preach the law so all the other ministers in the neighborhood say we gotta get this guy out of here so they come together and they tell the people the gospel they give him hope um, Glenn Denning they said something about him going off to the seven uh, churches of the Revelation. I don't know what that means, but they got him out and they started this monthly meeting of revival, communion, Bible study, catechism. Let's bring order to this and let's tell the people about God's salvation. So um, they did this, but also this became one of the early kind of meetings of presbytery. Uh, they did, they were meeting, and because they were there, they were all Presbyterian. They kind of uh, they they didn't have discipline. They weren't ordaining, but it was an early background to um, what we see with uh, Presbyteries. So, you ever preach and you jump ahead of your notes? And all right, so James himself he is succeeded by his son Charles. Charles comes in and continues what his daddy did, but even stronger. He's going to push even harder. And um, he times up uh, this toleration that had been in Church of Ireland. The Presbyterian ministers are uh, deposed and sent out, which means they start preaching in homes and setting up Presbyterian meeting houses. No longer just Presbyterians in the Church of Ireland. They're now setting up what's going to become the church, uh, Presbyterian Church in Ireland. 1637... Charles decides he's going to bring a prayer book to Scotland. Some of you know this story. Uh, it didn't go over well. Stools were thrown. There's this riot that breaks out. The people protest. They get together, and they sign a national covenant saying, essentially, we ain't having it. This starts a war between um, Charles and um, Scotland. Uh, it's known as the Bishop's War. Might be the only war ever named after clergy. I don't know. They have this battle, and now, now Charles needs money, and he has to go to Parliament. Um, and Parliament and him are not going well. He's tried to not have them meet. They have all these grievances. They're heavily influenced by Puritans. And um, so he, he's going to call a Parliament, and he now he's facing another difficulty. 1641, there's a Catholic uprising in Ireland. And he, he's going to need money to, to deal with all these wars of people he's made angry. In Ireland, with the uprising, the, the army in Scotland is sent over there. And when they're there, they have chaplains, they have elders who are officers. They established the first presbytery in Ireland. It came with an army. 
They, they have this presbytery at Carrickfergus, but then you have all these other meetings of churches around them that say, okay, we're here. They start sessions and they start appealing to this presbytery for oversight and for ministers. And so that's the origin of Presbyterian, you know, with, with actual court and actual body um, is from those military um, officers who are elders and from the chaplains. All right, so back to Parliament. Getting dizzy yet? Okay, so back to Parliament. He needs the money, and um, he, he has to deal with their grievances. And a lot of their grievances, because they're Puritans, is what's going on with the church. So they uh, form an assembly of um, learned divines, learned and godly divines. These are all from the Church of England, but also some advisors from the Church of Scotland. Now, the plan is that Scotland, Ireland, and England are going to have one reformed church that is more along the lines of Scotland. Um, and so they've assembled this body that is going to reform the Church of England and have a pattern that's going to be followed by all the nations of, um, of this United Kingdom. Um, this happens because Parliament needs the Scottish army. And so there's kind of a deal of, okay, you get your church in order, we'll send some troops. Um, just the, so this, this body forms, it's the Westminster Assembly. So this is obviously our confessions and catechisms that also produced a directory of public worship, form of presbyterial church government, uh, form of family, or a directory for family worship as well, um, in which they instructed household to have catechism, have prayer regularly. Um, so since these are our standards, since they're um, helpful for us to understand how Presbyterians at this time um, thought on evangelism, let's look at them. Um, this was adopted uh, by Parliament, by um, Scotland, by Presbyterians in Ireland. The first thing is if you were to look at the form of government, it lists the officers of the church. And it says, now there were some temporary officers and there's permanent officers. The temporary officers were apostles, and prophets and evangelists. The ones that remain are church governors. They don't use the term elder, church governor, and ministers, and deacons. And they followed, it was in the second book of discipline, it was also in John Calvin, they understood the office of evangelist as a sort of assistant to the apostles. They speculated maybe it was the 70s. So you have, um, uh, if you think about it, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, Philip, the evangelist. If you think about the word evangelist, it's someone who wrote a gospel, and don't we have Mark, who was an assistant to Peter, and Luke, who was an assistant to Paul. So their thought was, evangelist is something we no longer have. The word gospel, in our confession, very often refers to the dispensation of the covenant of grace. It was administered at a time of law and a time of gospel, and it talks about how things work now in the time of gospel. Our catechisms refer more to the gospel as the message that is presented. Um, so we, we, we see a, a few things that tell us that we are to share the message of the gospel. So Westminster Confession 7, uh, 6, that under the gospel, when Christ, the substance was exhibited, that is in this time of the gospel, he is exhibited under the ordinances in which the covenant is dispensed is, are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper. We've heard that earlier. But here it is. It is um, with more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to be proclaimed to all nations. 
this word and, and these sacraments are to be given to all nations. Uh, confession 15, repentance into life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as faith in Christ. We're to proclaim Christ, call people to repentance and to trust in him. That is a minister's job. Uh, larger Catechism 191, paralleled with Shorter Catechism, 10, uh, Shorter Catechism 102, what do we pray in the second petition? When we're praying, thy kingdom come, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, um, that we're praying for the spread of the gospel. All of these uh, show the importance of the ordinary means of grace. Um, Shorter Catechism 89, how is the word made effectual with salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, and of building them up in holiness and comfort. After defining the visible church as the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the house and family of faith, it says in um, uh, Confession 25, unto this Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of saints. And then it also assumes the office of ministry. By whom is the word of God to be preached? The word of God is to be preached, uh, question 158, is to be preached only by such as sufficiently gifted and also duly approved and called to that office. It's not saying that the preacher is to preach and there's, they, they should be gifted, they should be called to it, they should be approved by a body who is um, supervising them. Interestingly also, in the larger Catechism 53, um, it's talking about Christ's ascension, and it uses the proof text of um, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, as Christ commissioning the apostles. And I bring that up because they understood it was a particular office. There were apostles and ministers of the word who came after them, that the church was given this commission, and we certainly call all people to bear witness and to be ready to give a defense, but there's a sense in which they understood that great commission not as for every individual to have the burden, but for ministers who, of the word, um, gospel uh, ministers to claim this. All right, so returning back to our timeline, just sensing this is where they are. Let's, um, we, we saw that um, uh, Charles was at war with him. Well, Charles loses, and he loses his head. Uh, he's executed for treason. Um, and during the time, it's just mass chaos. Presbyterianism in England is never really implemented, uh, but those standards are adopted by Church of Scotland, Ireland, everyone who comes from them, shapes them for, you know, even till this day. All right, so things are just out of hand, and in 1660, they decide to restore the monarchy. They bring back um, uh, Charles's uh, son, Charles II, um, and as he is restored, guess what? He starts trying to bring everything back into Episcopal lines. He undoes all the undoes all the Presbyterian stuff, and tries uh, to bring things back in. Uh, but kind of as evidence of the, the schizophrenia and the way politics more than theology influenced things, he, he's he's going very harsh against Scotland. He's going to destroy. He's going to restore this established church, and any dissent he's going to destroy. Those who would not conform, uh, who would meet outside of the church, and who would, uh, were, were known as the Covenanters, and this culminated in a, the 1680s called the Killing Times, when 18,000 um, who would not conform lost their lives. 
On the other hand, in Ireland, with the Presbyterian Church, it was a dissenting body, and he had to watch out for another uprising of Catholics. He needed Protestants on his side. He gave money, um, this regium donum, this royal gift, uh, was a stipend to fund Presbyterian ministers. And so um, they received this. Um, Scotland received um, the harshness. One of the things that, that Regum Donum allowed was he could also kind of have some control to make sure it was only more moderate Presbyterians allowed in. Those covenanters were not going to come, and so it was exercising some control over the church. Um, the harsh penalties against um, our Presbyterians in Ireland would continue, even after um, things were settled in, in, in Scotland. All right, so 1680s, very difficult time in Scotland. Um, uh, in 1685, Charles dies. His crown passes to his brother, um, um, and who's Catholic. England and Scotland not terribly happy about the idea of a Catholic dynasty coming in. Uh, they say, how about your sister? She's married to this really good Dutch reformed guy over in, uh, in you know, William of Orange, he's going to come, and, and um, they offer the crown to him. He comes in in 1688. It's called the Glorious Revolution. So he comes, 1690, Presbyterianism is settled in Scotland. I want us to see all this back and forth. Hard to think about outreach when you're trying to save the neck, right? And also getting this in mind, 1690 is only 16 years before the first Presbyterian church, or Presbyterian meets in America. So it's not like there's this long historic um, tradition of Presbyterianism that's handed to us. We're, we're in formation this whole time. So in Ireland, um, there's, things are okay for the, the, the Presbyterians, but they're still under persecution and penalties. So there would be laws that would restrict them from serving on town councils. So we had a lot of Presbyterians just walk away from serving that way. Um, if you were married by a Presbyterian minister in Ireland, your, pre your marriage wouldn't be recognized. Your inheritance would be endangered. You could be liable to charges of fornication with your wife. It was um, hard to buy land, hard to rent. And so this is what would lead to a lot of Irish um, Presbyterians leaving, coming to America. In spite of these restrictions, uh, Irish Presbyterianism continued to spread throughout the 18th century. New Presbyteries were constituted, ministers would preach, um, were, were preaching. Um, there were complaints given to the monarch that um, the Presbyterians are not content to just stay in their settled meetings. They've assumed the power to send out missionaries into several places of this kingdom where they have no call nor congregation. They were sharing the gospel. They were going beyond the bounds. It wasn't just send us a chaplain. We want to reach out to others. Their willingness to suffer persecution gave them credibility with people. Their willingness to suffer persecution and being in the same um, um, kind of oppressed position with Irish Catholics gave them um, a place of integrity as they began missions to um, other Irish. They, they brought in Gaelic speakers from Scotland to reach out um, to native Irish. And when the potato famine spread, they would... Um, see that as an opportunity to serve and to care for others. 
In the 19th century, they established a, a mission society to send out missionaries to other parts of Ireland um, and, and to share the gospel. In Scotland, the settlement of 1690, where they're kind of set up, um, is buttressed by the Union of, the Cram uh, Union of um, Parliament. So in 1706, Scottish Parliament um, goes away, and now it's one United Kingdom. And part of that treaty is Church of Scotland is going to stay Presbyterian. And so now they're settled, and they have some um, security. I mean, even, even, you know, it was constant back and forth, and so now they feel they can do something. So in 1709 is the foundation of the um, Society in Scotland for the Propagating of Christian Knowledge. They were going to reach out to areas of the highlands where there weren't a lot of churches. They were going to reach areas to share the gospel. Um, they would go to these places. Um, and incidentally, later they started wanting missions in North America. And they were the ones who supported David Brainerd. So, kind of a neat thing. So. Early on, they were establishing charity schools in the highlands. Um, one writer says evangelization and education were really inseparable in the view of the society. Its schoolmasters frequently acted as lay missionaries in the curriculum, included the study of scripture and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They employed itinerant catechists, probationers, missionary ministers, who would go and preach at these ad hoc preaching stations. And they um, uh, were, were continuing to reach out. Just in noting, as I was looking at this, one of the fascinating things for me, especially our idea of, of the sense of what it meant to be a state church and the persecutions and things, was they were going to areas that were highly um, Catholic populations. And the, the society suggested that we don't let Catholic students come learn writing and arithmetic unless they attend worship with a Presbyterian minister. The synods and the presbyteries rejected that, said no. That is that faith cannot be coerced. Faith can't be compelled. So this is part of our missions, is not saying you must believe. It's, it's going out, serving and loving and, and sharing the good news of Christ. In addition to preaching in the areas beyond, the, uh, uh, beyond these parish churches, instead of not just going to remote areas, evangelization took place within the church. Um, in large part, not just the pulpit ministry, but the pulpit ministry was supported by the visitation of ruling elders. So the tradition was you would take the parish, you would divide it up into districts, and each elder would be responsible for a district to go um, to um, uh, just check on people and their spiritual lives to see are they um, being obedient, are they trusting, and to visit the sick. Um, this was part of the second book of discipline, is they were to have oversight of the flock. Um, and I, I love this idea of, as the pastors and doctors should be diligent in teaching and sowing the seed of the word, so the elders should be careful in seeking the fruit of the same in the people. The idea was the pastor was to preach and give the seed of the word, and the elders were to be involved in lives and looking for fruit of that same word. We're both involved in word ministry, looking for um, um, its work in the congregation's life. Um, we have a few sample questions. Uh, they would include things like, do you, do you let your kids play games on the Lord's Day? Um, but also just, did everybody attend worship without sleeping or trifling behavior? Um, did you catechize your family here last Sabbath? Do you daily cause your family to, to pray? 
Um, how much of the shorter catechism in scripture does your household know by heart? They're, they're testing and seeing, are you being obedient to your requirement of leading the household? And then some of the questions we have, this is 18th century Irish Presbyterian minute book has records of some of the questions an elder would ask when visiting the sick. I just find these pressing. If it please God that this disease prove mortal, where do you think your soul will go after death? What is the true ground of faith without which it's impossible to please God? Were you never um, afraid of God's wrath? Oh, when you were afraid of God's wrath, what comforted you the most? Did you ever hear a sermon that thought especially fit your case? Uh, what's the difference between the law and the gospel? And um, what, is, what is it that gives the vilest sinner a right to Christ and the promise? And he gives some suggested scripture to share with someone to let them know of the promise they have and, and where their hope is. We also have admonitions from an 18th century Scottish elder, David Dixon, in his book, The Elder and His Work. Uh, he says, on entering in his work at first, that is the elder, and as the new people come into his district, an elder must endeavor to get into conversation with them individually as to the state of their souls. Is the great question yet settled? Have they said yes or no to the message of peace on earth and goodwill to men? Elders often feel it difficult to get into this kind of conversation. Something's never changed. It should be done, of course, privately, prudently, tenderly, but it should be done. Not in the spirit of stand by for I am holier than thou, but of one who is greatly concerned about their eternal interest. Let us not be content with mere generalities, for our visits are, those, are, are not those of ceremony or courtesy. We have a great business in hand, the great business. Right, so Dixon would later become part of the Free Church of Scotland. This was a schism that happened in 1843, known as the Great Disruption. And there were a lot of things that would lead to this schism. Uh, but one of the things was there was a, a group under the leadership of Thomas Chalmers trying to establish new churches as outreach to areas that uh, weren't being served. It, the gospel wasn't being proclaimed because there wasn't churches to proclaim the gospel. Glasgow, where he was serving, had um, grown from a, you know, a small village medieval town um, to, during the Industrial Revolution, to a very large city. In 1800, the population of Glasgow was 84,000. It was being served by eight parish churches. One of the problems was a parish was a civil jurisdiction as well as ecclesiastical. Presbytery couldn't just say, okay, well, we're going to set this up and send another pastor because it was part of the school system. It was part of um, the welfare system. And so you had to have state authority. And they were working up programs of, of setting up churches that wouldn't be allowed to sit in presbytery or set up churches that could fund themselves. And eventually the conflict led to um, being appealed to the, the civil courts and kind of the equivalent of the Supreme Court in Scotland uh, ruled other things they were dealing with, but this was part of it, that they had exceeded their authority. And standing for the independence of the church, um, a third of the Scottish ministers walked away, walked away from the buildings, walked away from the salary, walked out and established the Free Church of Scotland. Um, and they, they did so um, in part with the, the idea of the state's authority impinging upon the authority of the church. So let me, let me give you a, a few reflections. 
Uh, one is, all of this should kind of warn us about being too wedded to power. Now, having wealth, having privilege, gave them resources to reach out to places. But also, as we saw, the idea of having the state tell you where you can have a church or not was a consequence of having you know, the, the privilege of having state backing. But it's not only a problem with the establishment. In Ireland, um, there was a, a temptation to not call in new pastors and not call in new um, churches. Want to guess why? The king gave them money, and he gave them a limited amount of money. And if we call in new ministers, we have to divide that money with other pastors. Our share becomes smaller. And so that, that, that gift becomes something that became a temptation not to share the gospel. And then later, um, Irish Presbyterians become more and more united with um, the, the, the Church of Ireland. They become more kind of part of quasi-establishment. Um, and they, they kind of lose their voice with native Irish Catholics because now they're part of the oppressive Protestant, not one of us who are being suffered. And so it should tell us that, you know, we enjoy the privileges, but if we're seen as part of something other than that, God's willingness to suffer stands for a lot, um, gives some credibility. But also, um, have reflected on this, that the principle of establishment has something worth considering. Um, not only was it privileges given, but it was responsibility, and those responsibilities were taken seriously because the responsibility was to serve the nation. I want, to be, I want to be gentle, I want to be careful. Where are we seeing mostly churches being established? Rural areas. Impoverished urban areas. Where do we put most of our churches? Our view of church planning is market-driven. Now, I understand return on investment. I, in turn, you know, go to where the people are. But, well, yeah, I'll go my rant. I can remember... Who was it? The Saddleback Sam, the whole idea of finding people and looking like them. And um, that, was, that was when I was in seminary. And the idea of you know, God calling you to this suburb. And I can remember thinking, has anybody ever called to Trailer Park, Tommy? Just something to consider. Don't, don't take that as something. But, but it is interesting that we, we kind of say, oh, the establishment of the state church means they're not spiritual. But it also meant they took responsibility and continue to take responsibility for places that we, we don't look at. Second, notice the importance of education and catechism. Um, they everywhere were teaching the faith. And think about what that means. We almost think that's discipleship. Evangelism is Romans Road and Two Ways to Live, which my church uses. We use Two Ways to Live, so um, don't, it's not saying don't do that, but isn't the catechism a pretty awesome presentation of the gospel? We talk about authority. We talk about who God is. We talk about our problem is. We talk about how, what Jesus has done, how we're saved, and how we live in response to that. And so if you think about it, if every household was told, catechize your family, that means you're constantly preaching or catechizing. You're teaching the gospel, presenting it over and over with the patience to let the Holy Spirit bring someone to faith instead of a short few-minute conversation um, saying, make a decision now. You know, you're, you're gradually giving this. And one of the things I love about this idea 
is I find, I find people burdened with the idea that I have to share the gospel to every single person I know. I have to tell everybody I meet. And if, if you're one of those extroverted people that can do that, blessings. I mean, you have giftings that God gives you to do that. I'm not saying that's, that's wrong, but I know people who feel guilty because they're doing their work, but then they haven't done enough to share the gospel, and there's always more people. I mean, the nations, it's a whole lot of people, and they're feeling like I haven't told it enough. And I think we burden people when we say, oh, no, you have to tell it to everyone. And then the other thing is when we say you have to tell every single person, that is a really vague group of people. Again, this is just reflection. <laughs> but what about this kind of idea? You have a limited group of people that God has placed you in his providence over, and they are who you have a primary obligation to. And obviously, have conversations, share the gospel with your neighbors, do that. But really pay attention to the people you have influence in and share the gospel with them. Teach them the faith. Teach them the things of God. So catechism and teaching, um, understanding that that is the means, or one of the means God's used to, God uses to illuminate us to his truth. I think a lot of the revivals that have taken place have been in response among a group who have been catechized well, whether it was through um, formal means, as in Scotland, or informal means, like a lot of the mid-20th century revivals, of a response to a people who had you know, the faith constantly being taught them um, just in the culture. So great story, Dwight Moody, the evangelist, goes to revivalistic meetings in Scotland. He goes to a grammar school in Scotland to say uh, he's going to share the gospel with these kids. And we always think these are people who've never heard the good news, right? That's what who responds in a revival. That's who comes forward. They've never heard this. And he kind of rhetorically says, oh, what is prayer? Hundreds of hands goes up. Prayer is an offering of our desires unto God in the name of Christ, by the help of the Spirit, with the confession of our sins, and thankful and honest from those mercies. They were catechized. They knew the answer to question 98. So... Third, ruling elders' work is crucial. Um, we, we see how the, the sessions were formed and called at pastors in Ireland, um, how they were willing to stand by their convictions, willing to suffer. It's, um, you know, we, we, history kind of records the names of people like Thomas Chalmers, uh, the one who uh, led the group that became the Free Church of Scotland. He never could have done what he hadn't if elders hadn't have been working and supporting him. He never could have done the work he wanted to do if elders hadn't been in agreement, encouraged him, and participated in that work. So just a question of, you know, elders, are you encouraging your pastor in the work of gospel ministry? Uh, we, can, we can really get focused in on taking care of ourselves and our needs, and that's where the pressure is, but are we looking for places? Um, are we encouraging? And then finally, uh, do we trust the ordinary means of grace? The, the, the fact that communion was such a strong part of um, the piety of our ancestors is because they believed God does something there, that he actually does something. It's not something we're just, uh, that we do. And, um, you know, fencing the table, you know, it kind of sounds harsh. Don't eat it. Don't, don't. But what a what, way to confront people with saying, am I really in this? Do I trust Jesus? And as often as you celebrate that, that's one of the ways the means of grace um, confronts us with the gospel and opportunity to respond. And then especially preaching. Um, you know, I've, I've been to churches at times where well, I just, the overwhelming sense I get is that you do not trust, you have no confidence in the sermon. 
because you treat it so unseriously. There's a sense in which you're almost apologizing for having to take up some time about this, or you try to add in other things to make it appealing because you don't trust the Word to do its work. Do we we really trust the preached Word to do what God has said it will do? Um, The Spirit of God makes especially the preaching of the Word effective. It's following the first book of discipline that says, For whosoever heareth Christ's ministers heareth himself, and whosoever rejecteth and despises their ministry and exhortation rejecteth and despises Christ Jesus. This is a strong part of our background, is the understanding as the second Helvetic Confession, which was also recognized by the Church of Scotland, says that when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed. The preached word of God is the word of God. And that gives me encouragement um, because I don't have to trust my wit or a lot of things that aren't worth trusting. I trust the Holy Spirit to fulfill his promise to use the foolishness of preaching. I hope that gives you encouragement. And do we act as we believe it? Is it primarily, uh, let me just finish with this, do we see evangelism primarily as a pulpit thing? Or do we do a lot of other things in the church, but then don't have the gospel being proclaimed from the pulpit? What I think of is churches that say, we want to attract people by talking about relevant topics. And so they give how-tos in the pulpit, but then put the burden of evangelism own lay people and they act as though those are going to be the ways that are used rather than the, the means of grace and don't hear me wrong we we train our people to share a presentation um, but we believe that the primary burden of evangelism is in the pulpit so um kind of or we hear rumbling stomachs friends we are we're at the hour we're at the hour. Uh, a few things, Scott.